Join Hoda Kotb for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Today, we talk with two women whose lives were touched by painful struggles and can now see, despite their pain, that God has a plan to use their stories for good. Author Rachel Hollis and cancer activist Gil Shenzel. Rachel Hollis is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Girl, Wash Your Face. Rachel is a top motivational speaker and CCO of The Hollis Company, a media and lifestyle company, plus a mother of four. She shares some deeply personal tragedies and triumphs along her journey to success and the motivation behind why she desires to challenge women to reach for a better version of themselves each day. I am Rachel Hollis. I am an author and a lifestyle influencer and a speaker and a mom of four. I do a lot of a lot of things. So I actually grew up in Bakersfield, California, which is about two hours north of here, and is very much like you picked up West Texas and dropped it into Southern California. So everybody, um, almost everybody works in agriculture, drives a truck, wears Wranglers, the whole thing. My father was a Pentecostal minister. My grandfather was a Pentecostal minister. So I grew up Pentecostal in a small country church uh, with maybe 200 people attending and 187 of them were family members. So I was the baby of four children and I grew up, um, I think as the baby you are oftentimes um, attention seeking. So I, the way that I kind of learned to get attention or notice was performing. I grew up doing theater. I, you know, always wanted to make people laugh. I always wanted to um, tell stories. My family on both sides from Oklahoma. So we have a long history and Irish. So we have a long history of like storytellers and um, like, you know, the, the, the fish tale that gets bigger and bigger every single time the daddy tells it, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, so that was, um, church culture was a huge part of my life growing up. Very, um, I say very, I say this in the book, but I, um, I didn't ever think like, oh, there's only one way to be because I frankly didn't even know that there were other kinds of people. Very homogenous. Everybody around me was just like me. Everybody around me was Pentecostal. Everybody around me, same education, same color of skin, same background. And it wasn't really until I came to LA that I understood that not everybody grew up the way that I grew up. I know a lot of other preachers' kids, and I would say that 99% of us would tell you that oftentimes life appeared wonderful from the outside and was really hard inside. That oftentimes the preacher spends so much time caring and loving on everybody else's family that there isn't a ton left over for their actual, you know, their actual family. So 
it was it was really hard in a lot of ways and I from a very early age just started to daydream about what it would be like to get out what it would be like to not be in this space and you know LA frankly was the closest city it was two hours away from where I grew up I mean a, a world away and two hours away but I just started to daydream about a different life a better life from I, I can't fathom my 11 year old because I have an 11 year old daydreaming of like getting out but I really was from a, a from a very early age thinking about that and what that would mean and so from the second I got in high school I took every class I could in order to graduate early I graduated as a junior and in in retrospect it just seems absolutely bonkers that a 17 year old would move to Los Angeles like I couldn't even sign the lease on my apartment I had to have my mom sign for me um, to, to move here and went like got into school I went to an acting school I was gonna be an actress that was my big plan big life plan um, but immediately started working I would go to class in the morning and then I started working as a part-time assistant in the afternoon and I got offered a full-time job and I got offered a full-time job at a production company where normally you would have to have a college degree to get the job and I just thought well why in the world would I do four years of school like I I've been offered the job now so I just dropped out of school and took the job and I've been working ever since I think that I've done really well with the idea of um, fake it till you make it I think it's such a funny thing in business you know I do I speak a lot at business conferences and it's a question that you get often do you believe in the idea of fake it till you make it and I do because I think it's worked really well for me, but I also have always been smart enough that, you know, to be quiet and to listen and to ask questions and to not assume. Um, part of it is that um, if you're going to sort of put yourselves in these, you're, if you're gonna put yourself in these situations, they have to be open to what you're gonna learn, that you kind of have to let the process guide you versus assuming that you know best. You know, you're like a 19 year old yeah, oh, like of you have no idea what you're talking about. And I think I was smart enough to understand. I'll get myself in the room, but I'm going to be quiet and listen and absorb, rather than just assuming that I know best. Like it takes my breath away, is um, to be able to look back over the last decade, and just watch how God's been lining things up. Just it really is um, incredible to see nothing is lost and nothing is wasted and even like the idea that I wanted to be an actress when I was little and I did um, musical theater and I was on stage a ton and I would have if you would have asked me five years ago even if that would ever come into play in my life again I would be like absolutely not what are you talking about and now I look at you know we do this big women's conference and being able to be on stage and speak and hold an audience and entertain them and communicate and teach all of that came from doing plays when I was a little girl or even the idea of um, I would have never told you that I followed in my dad's footsteps at all and I we were talking about the the conference yesterday and I was like oh my god like it's taken me this like oh I just I became a different version of what my dad did. My dad stood on stage and talked to people and tried to help them live a better life. Tried to communicate wisdom and stories from his own life to help them do that. I'm like, 
I'm doing the same thing. Like, I'm doing it in a secular space, but I have, oh my gosh, like, wow, this is all, this is all lining up. And the idea of authenticity is not something, even when I got started as a blogger, that wasn't popular. People didn't do that. And I remember the very first thing I ever put on the internet um, years ago was uh, I wrote a blog article about having Bell's palsy. I've had it three times, it's facial paralysis. And I've, I tend to get it when I've been stressed out. And I wrote this piece about it because I thought it would be helpful to other women, which has always been my goal. So I put a picture of myself with Bell's palsy at an eye patch. You know, my face is, half my face is paralyzed. It's not an attractive photo. And I got a call from a publicist that I was working with at the time. And she said, you have to take this picture down. You have to take it off the internet. This picture's forever. It's still there. You can Google image it. She asked me to take it down. And I had already received so many notes from women who appreciated the note, who appreciated my post. And I was like, nah, we're gonna, we're gonna leave it there. And that was really the first step. The reaction to that post was the first time that I realized that there was power in in sharing your true your true story, your vulnerability. So that first post then led to, you know, more and more me talking about postpartum depression or problems in my marriage. I just started to really share the truth of what I was going through and my um my intention from the very beginning was that I would never share a hardship if I couldn't also share with you what had helped me get through it. So I would never talk about a hard thing just to talk about a hard thing. That's not really my style because I think, well, shoot, that doesn't help anybody. I want the tangible solutions to kind of help me get past this. So that led to years later on a beach in Mexico sharing a picture of myself in a bikini with my stretch marks and talking about, it wasn't intentional, I didn't plan it out. I just said what I was thinking, which was, hey, I wear a bikini even though I have all these stretch marks and the only man whose opinion matters knows what I went through to get these. And he loves me just the way I am and you know, be proud of your body. And I know so many women who'd kill for the opportunity to have carried three babies. And it went viral, it went all over the world, it was seen everywhere. And that was just another step into, oh man, women are really craving this. They really want to see the truth. They really want to see that. And when Girl Wash Your Face came out, I've never experienced anything like it in my whole life. I, you know, the day after, a couple days after, I, real, I was like, wow, this started on a beach in Mexico three years ago. Because really, that post, the response to that post made me realize how, how much people were craving this kind of conversation. I think were probably my, my struggles with my view of God as a child versus my view of God now come from really the struggle wrapped around who a woman should be. That's really where my struggle, like with my own identity and who I am, because I was raised in an environment where women uh, should stay home, they should take care of babies, they don't work, um, they, uh, you know, you should be subservient, you should be small, you should, you know, you're a daughter, like just all of that stuff. And I really, really struggled with that because how do you um, reconcile this 
business that I've built and this work that we're doing and this platform that I have, which I believe, like how can I believe that God gave me this platform, but also that he doesn't want me to have it or talk about it or be proud of it. I, I, so I really, for years and years and years, I struggled with this idea. And I had an epiphany, um, maybe four years ago, I had gone to a conference and I was at the time really struggling with like, if you had asked me, if we ran into each other at a party and you said, like, what do you do for a job? I would have said, I'm a blogger. Not that I have a media company, not that I have the staff, not that we produce these incredible events or do this beautiful work in the lives of women all around the world. I wouldn't have told you any of that because I was raised in a space where good girls don't talk about themselves. So I really struggled with reconciling that for a long time and then I had this epiphany and I just thought, oh my gosh. God made me this way. He made me this way. And if he made me this way, if he put this desire on my heart, how can it be bad? Um, I think it could easily turn bad. You could easily start chasing the wrong things or go after the wrong success. But like, if God puts a fire in your heart to be a stay-at-home mom, that is beautiful and incredible. And why can't we say the same thing to women who, who God puts a fire in their heart to, to own a business, to employ other people, to do missional work, to build a company, whatever it is. So I think if I've struggled with anything, it's that and just like such a peace. It was an incredible peace in my life 10 years ago and I truly understood the gospel for the first time. You are loved and worthy and, and enough as you are. And it was a life altering moment for me when I realized not only are you loved, but there was purpose in how you were designed. And even if you aren't designed exactly like her or her or your mom or your sisters or the other women, um, there was a reason that you were given this desire in your heart to do something and it is a, a travesty when you don't own that. Our potential is our gift from God. What we're capable of is our gift from God. And I can't fathom anything more horrifying than you dying with all your potential left inside of you because you were worried about what other people would think of you stepping into who you were meant to be. So when I set out to write the book, it was never, I didn't know that I was writing lies. I just thought, let me write about the hardest seasons of my life and let me talk you through the steps that I took to get past those seasons. And when I got about halfway through and I started looking at all of them, I was like, oh my gosh, they were all lies. It was all, un, it was, none of this was true. All of that plays into the women that we are. And if we don't, become self-aware, if we don't call that out, if we don't look at it in daylight and go, wait a minute, this isn't true, this isn't real, I don't have to carry this with me for the rest of my life. If we don't have those moments, we will, it'll stay with us. And five years from now or 10 years from now or 15 years from now, the devil doesn't have any new tricks, man, it's gonna keep, it's gonna stay with you. So yeah, I didn't set out to write lies. It just so happens that all my hardest times were because of lies. Culturally, if the market, if the world, if the media can make you think something is wrong with you, they can get you to buy something. 
Um, if you're overweight, we got a diet for you. If you are sick, we've got a pill you can take. If we, if you're unhappy, here's a vacation, here's clothes, here's makeup. You don't feel pretty enough. We've got something you can do your hair. If we can make you confused, if we can make you unsure, if we can make you hate yourself, then we can sell you things. And we are so used to it because we've seen it since we were little girls and our mom saw it before us and their mom saw it before them. We've stopped questioning it. We've stopped wondering why women have to look a certain way, why we have to be a certain size, why that jacket's in this spring and this one's out, why we just accept it as part of a, a part of our life, as part of culture. And we don't recognize all the different ways that we're being bombarded with things that will make us insecure about who we are so that we can buy something. So I feel like we have, I mean, gosh, it's like we're sold this stuff from the time that we're a little girl. And because it's part of our culture, not only are we getting it from the media, but we start to do it to each other. So we learn that um, a beautiful woman only looks a certain kind of way, and now I'm going to strive to be that kind of woman, and if you're not, there's something wrong with you. Or we're going to learn that, um, you know, good moms are only the moms that stay home with their kids and breastfeed and give their kids an organic diet, and if you step outside the parameters of what I know to be true, then there's something wrong with you. Because this makes me feel safe. Because if I can make you feel insecure, if I can make you unsure, you'll buy into the straight and narrow. This is what we do. I actually feel like we do this a lot with church, a lot with our denominations, the only right way. Our church is the only right way. This is the only way you're allowed to worship. This is the only way you're allowed to love God. And if you step outside of this, I can't. I can't talk to you, I can't be friends with you, I can't, you're wrong. And you have to cling to that because you're uncertain and these rules that are in front of you that you've decided to accept, that makes you feel safe. So it, we're, we're seeing it all day, every day, in every single way and you need more people to just stand up and go like, wait a minute, what, what is this? And the only way that that happens is if more people feel empowered to tell their truth, to say, hey, I know this is the norm. I know that, you know, on social media, every woman has six pack abs, but like, I have a muffin top. I don't know. Like, hey, I know that that mom is like killing it and her kids are in 75 activities and they're, you know, they say yes ma'am and no sir. You know, my kid just rammed his head into the wall and lit the kitchen on fire. So that the other 75 moms who had the same day can go like, praise the Lord, me too. Like I'm not the only one. Um, so I just think it's our culture and I think that we accept it as the normal part of life and we don't question it because nobody's questioning it. So for me, I really love these hair extensions. I love them. I love makeup and I love cute clothes and all the things, but I don't for one second think that you need to have that. I don't think that you even need to be interested in it. It's just this fun thing that I do. But that's balanced with, um, it's, it's super important to me that if you see my Instagram with, you know, pictures where my hair looks super shiny and I'm in a cute outfit, 
that you also see just as many posts that we're putting out into the world where I look like garbage and my hair's in a bun, I haven't showered in three days, and I'm like barely surviving with my children. I think it's just as it's just showing real life. Part of the intention behind writing the book was I wanted to tell you what I had walked through. I feel like it's really easy for me to stand on stage, given a keynote, or you to watch my YouTube or whatever, and hear me talk about motivating yourself to get back on the wagon or trying again or not giving up on your dreams. It's really easy for me to say that. And I knew, and I know, because I get the notes, that there would be people who would say, well, that's easy for you to say with your house and your husband and your company and this. And I, if I never told you what I had to go through to get here, you might be able to to give you know to have that be your excuse because that's what you're looking for if you're attacking someone else and saying well it's easy you know it's not hard for you you've got it all figured out everything just falls well you want the excuse for why i've managed to do it and you have not so if i could tell you that I have a high school diploma and I've built all this. If I could tell you the trauma of my child, if I could tell you the really crappy, hard things that I've lived through, and not only did I bounce back, but that I am reaching for joy every day, that I am the most positive person that you've met, that despite what I've gone through and despite what will happen, and even in, there's there's hard times still coming, because this is life and I'm alive, as long as I'm alive, hard crap is going to show up. But if I, I have trained myself to, to, like you said, rebound, to, to reach for good things. I had, um, someone had asked me, uh, at the beginning of the year, how, like, I know you talk about being positive and, um, gratitude and focusing on your blessings and that, I know you talk about that stuff and it's so easy to be happy when life is good, how do we, how are you supposed to still be happy? How are you supposed to still be joyful when life gets hard? How do you do it when you find out that you have cancer? How do you do it when, you know, your mom has Alzheimer's and you're taking care of her? How do you do it when your kid's sick? How do you do it when you lose your job? And I was like, oh man, y'all think I've been training you to be joyful, to reach for joy every day and what I've tried to teach you is how to make it such a habit how to be so grateful for every single blessing that God has given you how to be so positive how to how to be so strategic with I'm gonna wake up in the morning I'm gonna I'm gonna reach to be a great mom I'm gonna reach to be a great wife I'm gonna reach to be a great leader so that when life gets hard so that when the horrible thing happens it's so habitual inside you now that you don't know how to stop. I was never trying to teach you how to be happy when life was happy. I was trying to teach you how I learned to be happy even when life was hard. I think how you start your day is the most important choice that you can make in your whole life. So um, one of my favorite things is uh, the five minute journal. It's the same page every day. It's three questions. So um, it's th what th three things I can be grateful for, three things that would make today great, and then one affirmation. And then you come back at the end of the day and you say three things you're grateful for, something you could have done better, and then an affirmation. And it's just like setting that intention in the morning, setting it at night. Um, 
So for me, that's a big one in um, just uh, wait. Like, so I wake up super early. I'm like a 5 a.m. kind of girl because that's the time before my kids wake up. So it's one of the things that I most recommend to other women is getting up an hour before your kids. So you're starting the day on offense instead of defense. But taking that time to pray, to meditate, to work out, to do something for yourself, to center yourself, to remind you who you are, who you wanna be, where you're going. It is a hard season as a, as a business owner. And I have four kids, so it doesn't feel like there's a ton of opportunity to um, rest and really like that it really is <clears throat> it's the thing I struggle with most it's the thing that like every pastor is like that's great but when do you rest I'm like right I will work on that um, so I think my um, when I when I sat down at the beginning of this year I did something I've never done before it was super helpful I audited my calendar from 2017 so it took me about three hours. I went through every single appointment that I had in 2017 and I wrote down basically how I'm spending my time. And I was really clear with myself about, okay, what were the things that I think were a waste of time, a waste of money, a waste of energy, a wa and there were a lot. And what are the things that I really value? Date nights with my husband, time, you know, vacations with my kids, a spa, I'm gonna go get a massage, dinners with my girlfriends, like what are those things that I really care about? I wanna build my calendar around those things. I wanna build my calendar intentionally around the person I wanna be, not who everyone else keeps trying to pull me to be. Um, I heard someone say, and I don't remember who, but there's nothing on your calendar that you didn't put there or you don't allow to be there. And women struggle so much with saying no we want to please everyone and we want to take care of everyone and we want to make sure you know they ask you to volunteer at your kids school you got to do it and show up at church you got to do it all this stuff making sure that you are really thoughtful about um about what's on your calendar what's in your life who you're showing up as because i think otherwise it just gets away from me even if you're a stay-at-home mom it just gets away from you all of a sudden a weeks went by or a months went by and you're like wait a minute what where am i in all of this so the greatest lesson, gift, tool in my life. This is nothing new. We've all heard it a million times. Oprah told us this 25 years ago. Um, every single day of my life, every single day, I make a list of 10 things that I'm grateful for. Every single day. And the piece of advice I always give to anyone who's trying this for the first time is do not make a list of big things. Don't say I'm grateful for my husband, I'm grateful for my job. Make a list of things that happened to you that day that you can feel gratitude over. Because if you know at the end of your day that you're gonna have to write down 10 things, you will spend your day looking for blessings. You spend your day noticing a gorgeous sunset, appreciating a cup of coffee that you have in the morning, being grateful that you got to giggle with your friend on the phone, and your, it changes your perspective, it changes everything. I believe that you choose your attitude. Every single morning you choose your attitude. I did this last night, I was falling asleep in bed, and I started to have an anxiety attack. I, I have suffered from anxiety for a long time. And by the way, gratitude is, um, it sounds so cheesy, but gratitude is truly how I got past anxiety. So I, as I'm falling asleep last night, I start to have anxiety. I immediately, like, it's a trigger for me. Nope, 
here we're gonna do some we're gonna do some meditation we're gonna do some prayer on things we're grateful for and I made myself last night as I'm falling asleep just that day I'm like remember when I got home and Noah like screamed because she was so excited to see me that's my daughter um, and remember the hug that Ford gave you that's my son and remember how Dave brought you a cup of coffee this morning and remember um, how you got to talk to your girlfriend on the phone and I just and then I start to fall asleep and I really did the anxiety crept up and I was like, nope, okay, we gotta keep going. Tonight we're gonna do 20 things. It's such a powerful tool for me because no matter what season you're in, and I have done this in really, really hard seasons, you, there's always something to be grateful for. There's always something to be joyful for. I mean, if someone is listening to this podcast or watching on the video, that means you've got a phone or a computer, that means you have access to the internet, that means you are doing better than 99% of the world's population, you have things to be grateful for. So gratitude is a really big part of um, my perspective and my attitude and I just carry it with me every day. We had a very long process to a, through adoption to get our daughter and we had the year previous been placed with um, newborn twins that we had for a month and a half and that we thought were our daughters we were adopting them they didn't have names like they were my daughters and uh, six weeks in their biological father came back and decided that he wanted wanted them and we lost them and in that season one of the hardest experiences in my adult life it felt like it felt like my child had died and I don't mean to be disrespectful to anyone who's lost a, a, a child but I had these babies and they were mine and then they were gone and I didn't know is are they being fed the right way are they on the schedule are they cold or just like it was it was horrible it was a horrible experience and that was one of the hardest seasons of my faith journey in my entire life because I felt like I kept saying like we're here because you called us here God you called us here you called us here you and um, the song that I would cling to for four years as we went through this journey was um, oceans um, and so there's a sign you called me out upon the waters and so I just was like you called us out upon the waters and you left us here and where are you? Where are you? Where are you? I can't. It was a horrible, horrible experience. But I'm a year removed, or however long it was, um, and I'm at this conference, and we're doing a meditation on gratitude, and he says, can you think of one moment, a specific moment in time that you can be deeply grateful for? And without thinking about it, I could feel the feeling of the babies asleep on my chest when I brought them home from the hospital. And it was the first time that I could reckon, like that I could understand that you could have gratitude for something horrible that happened. I had never been able to feel joy about that experience after it happened. And in that moment, I realized, oh my gosh, there's so much blessing in this. For the time that you were together, you were so blessed to have them in your home. And I have to believe there was a reason they were there for that time. And I have to believe they're exactly where they're meant to be. And I have to believe that I'm a better person, that my husband's a better father, that we're a better couple, that, that we're a better family, all of these things because of that time that I had those babies and that feeling of them on my chest. I was able to feel grateful for something hard.
so that has been a really big lesson in my life. The experience was so horrible, <laughs> which just was. It was brutal. It was so hard. And now, of course, again, it's one of those things I look back and I'm like, oh, you were just lining it up just so so perfectly i'll tell you the end of that story as i'm i'm walking through the season of where are you where are you you've called me on the water and you've left me here so we had started a adoption in ethiopia in the program for a year and a half two years it closes down so that's a failed adoption we had girls in foster care they were in our home they end up leaving we have the twins so at this point five girls have cycled through our lives and after the twins left I was like, I'm done. Maybe we're just supposed to be happy with our sons. We are so blessed. We, I just, I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could do anything. I couldn't function. I literally cried all day long. I would come in my office, I would close the door, I would cry. I would take care of my kids at home, then I'd go in my bathroom and sob. Um, lost a ton of weight, just couldn't, couldn't get past it. I'm a, you know, I bounce back, I'm a positive. So. For me to have an experience where I'm like, I can't come out of this. I can't move on. And I told my husband, I don't, I don't want to adopt. I'm done. I'm done with this process. And um, he's like, he had heard about from, he had heard at work about an adoption attorney that a few people had used. He said, please, 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 please come and meet with this attorney. And I'm like, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. And he, um, I always tell this story because I want to give him credit for this. Most of the time in an adoption process, it's usually the mom that kind of pulls you in and the dad kind of goes along for the ride. And he pulled me out in our backyard. And it was the first time in five years, four years or whatever it was. He said, um, like he fought for the adoption. He said, our desire to have a daughter did not go away because it got hard. Your, your, your dream for your life doesn't go away because the journey got hard. He's like, our, we will have a daughter if we're willing to keep moving forward. If we're willing to stay in this game. If we're willing to keep taking steps, we will have a daughter. The time will pass anyway. Let's just keep walking towards this goal. So he begs me, begs me, please go meet with this attorney. We go meet with the attorney. I'm still not sure. I feel very weird about the whole thing. I'm, and every time you start an adoption journey, you're looking at two more years. And he took me to lunch afterwards. We're sitting at this restaurant and um, we're, we're basically rehashing the, all the years of the adoption process. I'm wearing big sunglasses. Behind the glasses, I'm crying, crying, crying. We're very close to our neighbors, but like nobody's acknowledging us. And we're just going through all the things. And I just said, I can't cannot do it. I can't keep, I can't, I'm like sobbing, babe, I can't do it. And all of a sudden this man slams his hand down on our table. And he, he says, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I have to, I, I, and he's like stumbling over his words. He says, I'm adopted. And my parents lost um, children in the adoption process. And if they had not kept moving forward, I would not be sitting at this table. And I would not have met my wife, and I would have not I wouldn't have graduated from college. He starts listing all of his accomplishments. He says, "You can't give up. You can't give up. You have to keep going. You have to keep going." And his name was Noah. So I'm like, <laughs> "I've been crying for three months. You called us out upon the water, and you left us here, and then you sent us Noah, which is why our daughter is named Noah, because it was a stranger that day at the restaurant who." 
slammed his hand on the table and told us to keep walking forward in faith. Um, and on the way, uh, we finished lunch and what the way to the car, I went to go wait for a valet. And I really had felt like, truly for three months, I had felt like, where are you? Where are you? That was my prayer. I just couldn't hear him. I couldn't, I just, I was lost. Where are you? And I'm waiting in line to get my car and I just heard God speak over me like, I am here. I have always been here. Sometimes it's harder to see, but I'm always with you. Rachel's best-selling book, Girl, Wash Your Face, is available wherever books are sold. We'll be right back after a brief message about a free offer from Jesus Calling. Are you looking for a way to keep track of your daily prayers along with Jesus Calling? The Jesus Calling Family Prayer Calendar goes right along with your daily readings from Jesus Calling. Each day begins with a guided reflection, followed by a space for you to fill in your prayers of thanksgiving and special requests. You can get your free Jesus Calling Family Prayer Calendar by visiting jesuscalling.com offers. Visit jesuscalling.com offers to download your free family prayer calendar today. Our next guest is Gil Shenzel, a tireless advocate for cancer awareness. When Gil's daughter Anna was just 20, she was diagnosed with an aggressive form of neuroendocrine cancer and passed away just nine months later. To raise awareness for the horrific disease, Gil decided to run through all 50 U.S. national parks in just nine months, a dream she and Anna shared together. Today, Gil tells us about her daughter and their dream, and how she finds the strength every day to press on her memory. My name is Gil Shenzel. Um, I live in Evergreen, Colorado, and I'm uh, almost 62 years old, and uh, I have been honored and blessed and humbled to be Anna's mom uh, for the 21 years that we had her. When Anna was born, I was 40 when she was born, and uh, which is later in life, but, you know, I had a lot of adventures in my life. I wanted to get out of the way before I had children, and, and uh, so I brought her home. Well, before we even left the hospital, the nurses were going wow, you've got a live one here. She doesn't sleep. She's watching everything. She, <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> and uh, we brought her home. And of course, none of that deterred me because I was just so smitten and so in love with her, you know, that it was like, oh, she's wonderful. You know, we just never had any trouble with her. She was just this wonderful kid. She was uh, good little volleyball player in high school, got straight A's. She just didn't give up. Uh, she just, you know, it didn't matter what it was, if it was volleyball or life or studies or whatever. She just didn't give up. She just, she had this tenacity. And of course, as a toddler, that's a very annoying thing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like I always tell people in parenting, you want to nurture that in a child. There is a reason your child is like that. Do not squelch that. You know, take that child and l treasure their heart and romance their heart and you will help them find their purpose in life. She loved people and she challenged everyone's thinking. You know, if she 
didn't feel like if she thought you were being racist or sexist or anything that was discriminating, she would call you out on it and say, you know, how would you feel if that was you? You know, <laughs> she would just really challenge your thinking. And, um, you know, not not just her parents, but everybody. Uh, she loved to mentor other young girls coming up in volleyball. That that was a, a big piece of her heart. And she loved nature and, and uh, just was an amazing kid. She had such a wonderful sense of humor. <laughs> she could uh, take the most sensitive thing and turn it into something hysterical. And uh, so I miss those things about her. Anna started coming home from track and volleyball practice with strange symptoms, first with numbness in her legs, then fainting spells and heart issues. After visiting several doctors, Anna was finally diagnosed with neuroendocrine cancer, also known as NET cancer. She was only 20 years old. This is what NET cancer, neuroendocrine tumor cancer, is about. It will typically be a whole bunch of unrelated benign, seemingly benign <clears throat> in health incidents, like people will get asthma, they'll get thyroid problems, they'll get insomnia, they'll get irritable bowel, they'll have tummy troubles, they'll, you know, on and on and on and on. And they all seem like very unrelated items that can be treated easily with an inhaler or a pill or it's not until later that all the dots start connecting with a proper diagnosis, which in the case of neuroendocrine cancer seems to be about five to seven years before that happens, which are critical years that should be treated with the proper treatment. And if they are, there's a very good chance that you can go on and live many years. Um, and have that time with your family to enjoy those times. Um, Anna was super aggressive, and uh, she did not have that time. By the time we put the dots together, um, she died nine months later. The night Anna died, we had her in bed between us, um, knowing that it wasn't going to be long and not wanting to say goodbye to her. And uh, all of a sudden, we had been told that her breathing would get slower and slower and slower. But in the middle of the night, something happened. Her breathing started becoming more normal. And I was like, oh, did we get her miracle? And I was like scared to move, scared to turn on the light, you know, just listening. And then all of a sudden, something wasn't right. So we did turn on the lights and sit her up a little bit more and, and realized that that was the moment that we'd all been dreading. And she hadn't been able to open her eyes in probably two or three days. And she opened her eyes and she looked up in our bedroom where the ceiling and the wall meet. And she 
was almost smiling. I mean, I could tell there was a serene look on her face and she saw something, something wonderful. And I said, honey, look at mama, look at mama, because I just needed one more glance from her. And, uh, but she couldn't, she couldn't look at me. She just kept looking at this spot. And then she was gone. And in that very moment, I'm still holding her and looking at her face just inches from her. But somehow I could see behind me at the same moment. And it was that same spot. And it was her. She had all her hair back. And she was looking out at this porthole of light. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful light. And she was like, I made it, Mom. I'm here. (laughs) And, you know, like, just the same way you tell your kids to call when they get somewhere. (laughs) It was just like that. She said it with the same nonchalance. I made it, Mom. I'm here. (laughs) You know, don't worry. I'm here. And then she was gone. But her hair was gorgeous again. (laughs) And she looked so beautiful and just so perfect. And so I knew she was safe, tucked in beside Jesus, and that she was okay. From the time of her diagnosis until the time she went to be with Jesus, my prayer was, God, please, just give it to me. Give it to me. I let her let her be, and I'll I'll take this gladly. And that didn't happen. So then after she passed, my prayer became, God, please just take my brokenness and use it to help somebody else. That's all I ask. I know I'm never going to be right again, but use that. Use that weakness, that brokenness to help heal somebody else. I had been running half marathons and um, broke my ankle in a half marathon in Yuma, Arizona. So I was rehabbing from that and, um, you know, really feeling quite sorry for myself that I couldn't get out and run. And then um, thought, I want to, you know, I think think maybe I want to get off the race circuit a little while and get back into nature and so I thought I think I'd like to run in all the national parks and just kept that to myself for quite some time while I was doing PT and then Anna became diagnosed and you know that was totally out of my brain um, for quite some time brought her home from chemo one day and was holding her because she was so sick and throwing up just constantly and you know, just absolutely miserable. And I was just snuggling her and I said, you know, sweetie, I got this crazy idea. And, you know, when you get better and, you know, I think you're going to be the first one to ever whip nets. Um, Would you like to drive the SAG vehicle for me? And you can, you know, you can sit in the car and support me, throw me a water bottle once in a while. She goes, no. I was like, oh, really? Oh, I'm kind of hurt, you know, because <laughs> it was a pretty flat turn down. <laughs> and she said, no, Mom, I'm going to run them all with you. And she was just so resolved, you know, there was no doubt in my mind that she 
was going to do that. And so that was something we kind of started planning here and there as she felt like talking about it. Um, you know, I was like, well, you know, where do you think we should go first? And, and then uh, it became evident that she wasn't going to be getting better. And so I put it on the back burner again. And then it was, you know, those um, shoulder taps you get from God. <laughs> After she um, went to go be with him, I got another one, and it was like, maybe you need to do this. This felt like unfinished business, and it was sitting there in the back of my mind that maybe, maybe this could be used to help net patients in some way, shape, or form. I didn't know what that was going to look like. Um, you know, I've never taken on anything like this before. And uh, mentioned it to her surgeon, Dr. Eric Liu, and he said, oh, you've got to talk to the head of the Healing Net Foundation. He's the chief medical officer for the Healing Net Foundation. I think this is something. So he put me in touch with Cindy Lovelace, who is the CEO and a net patient. <laughs> she gets this because she's living with it every day. And um, she said, oh, I just really feel like there's something special here. And uh, within a couple of months, this whole thing came together. And so, you know, <laughs> we both feel like this just had God's hand all over it. <laughs> um, she, and she actually said that to me yesterday. She, We were talking about it, and she said, you know, this just had divine hand all over it, didn't it? And I said, absolutely. This, this would never come together this easily, this perfectly. I think if human hands were not being directed... And uh, so that's that's kind of how it all started. And we decided to start it on uh, November 10th last year, which was Na National Neuroendocrine Tumor Awareness Day. And uh, I started at Mammoth Cave, Kentucky. And uh, then it kind of became evident that I was... Uh, nine months figured heavily somehow into this, and I wasn't sure how it did, but then it hit me one night in, in my tent uh, that I carried Anna for nine months. It was nine months from her diagnosis until her getting her wings, and it was nine months after her getting her wings to when I started this, and so I determined that I was going to finish it in nine months. And uh, 268 days later, <laughs> I crossed the finish line in Rocky Mountain National Park. 50 parks later. I get the question all the time, where have you found the strength to go out and travel 42,000 miles and run over 350 miles? <laughs> it's like, it's not mine. Do you? If you knew anything about grieving parents, you would know that I have not one ounce of my own strength. This is all God and Anna. <laughs> this has had a divine hand on it from the very beginning, and I take absolutely no credit for this.
being out in nature, you know, it was created by God. And it's a place where we go when we need to unplug from what the world's yakking in our ear. And we need to get out there and be alone and really listen. Now, for me as a long distance runner before, it was my kind of my Zen running place. And um, for me, it was a place to push and see how far I could go to see what I was made of. Now, all of that has changed for me. And now it's my time. I call it my heavenly conference call time. (laughs) I get out there and I start talking to God and Anna and my dad. And I just, you know, I get them all on the line and say, listen, guys, I have nothing in the tank today. I need you to do something about that. (laughs) Or I'm not sure what to do about this new situation that's arisen. I really need help with this. And we all just talk like like we've all got cups of coffee sitting down and yakking about it. And, you know, it's just that wonderful time of plugging into heaven instead of the earth. And um, it's, it's a great place of solace and comfort. One of the perks of doing this um, was that my faith in humanity <laughs> is restored again. Um, I could not, I still can't bear to watch the news. Um, if I hear anything that's happened to a child or something unjust, I just kind of fall apart. And um, being out there not hearing the news is a wonderful thing. I, I would highly recommend for anybody, at least a week of it if you can. Uh, It helped me so much to connect with people on a personal level. And like one woman in Big Bend, uh, we were just sharing a cup of coffee on the patio. She was injured and couldn't hike, and I had just come back. And um, she got to asking about the zebra tights that I wear. And I told her the story. And um, she was painting a little watercolor of the scenery we were looking at. And she gave it to me at the end. And she said, Gil, your daughter's just on the other side of the curtain. You can't see her, but she's right here. And um, that was just really big comfort to me. One of the Jesus Calling passages that was a great comfort to Gil in her darkest hours was from August 28th. In her honor, we present this passage to you from the Jesus Calling audiobook. Grow strong in the light of my presence. As my face shines upon you, you receive nutrients that enhance your growth in grace. I designed you to commune with me face to face, and this interaction strengthens your soul. Such communion provides a tiny glimpse of what awaits you in heaven where all barriers between you and my glory will be removed. This meditative time with me blesses you doubly. You experience my presence here and now, and you are refreshed by the hope of heaven, where you will know me in ecstatic joy. After Anna passed, a friend of mine gave me a copy, and she said, I just 
I think it'll be a comfort to you. And it has been. It's been a lovely comfort. And, you know, a lot of the lessons that I have been learning from it this year have been to just just be in the presence of God. Just be there. Don't ask a bunch of questions. Just be there and just be helpful. Your future feels gone when you lose your child. And um, I have often said since her passing that I feel like I have one foot in heaven already and one foot here, and I feel a little caught in between. And um, I think it's um, initially it felt kind of like a curse, like I can't. You know, I can't think of all the things I need to do here because my heart's already over there. <laughs> you know, my heart went with my baby. <laughs> and uh, so uh, that was a very awkward feeling for many months. And now, now it's starting to feel more of a blessing in that God has let me have a little taste of what's waiting. And it's pretty wonderful. To learn more about Gill's Run and the Healing Net Foundation, please visit thehealingnet.org. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we visit with country music superstar Josh Turner as he returns to the podcast to tell us about his brand new gospel record, I Serve a Savior, and why he feels so passionate about using his fame for good. I felt like there was always a specific purpose for me to get into the music business. And so this hasn't been about me even from day one. Um, when I was a lot younger, you know, that appealed to me, that whole fame and fortune aspect of it. But as I started walking through it, um, the Lord kept showing me that this is really not about me. Um, this is about the people that I can or will influence. Uh, by way of the talent that he's given me. Do you love hearing great stories of faith each week via the Jesus Calling podcast? We want to hear from you. If you haven't already subscribed to the Jesus Calling podcast, visit the Jesus Calling page at iTunes.com and hit the subscribe button. While you're there, we'd love for you to leave us a review and tell us how you feel about the show and what future guests you'd love to see. Your reviews and subscription help us share these stories of faith to more people who need the hope and encouragement of Jesus Calling. If you have your own story to share, we'd love to hear from you. Visit JesusCalling.com to share your story today.